Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. Were you ever asked to go on a uh, reality TV show? <laughs> I was asked to go on the after show for I'm a Celebrity. Get me out here. So there you go. The after Uh, show. Only the after show. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, the associate editor at The Telegraph. And this week, yep, politics has got boring again. And we are all a bit, well, relieved. Gone for now are the existential issues about whether the Prime Minister might survive the week. Instead... Politics is back to normal, debating weighty issues like immigration, Brexit and the environment. And I think, yeah, I admit it, we're all the better for it. So this week I'll be talking about the small boats crisis with local Kent MP Craig McKinley and the return of Project Fear with Cambridge Professor Robert Toombs. But first... This week, new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak performed a screeching U-turn, telling MPs he will go, after all, to the COP27 climate change conference in Egypt, days after saying he would sit it out. And Sunak is joined there, in Sharm el-Sheikh, by Labour's climate change spokesman, Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. It is an honour. It's an honour. It is an honour to be on a fellow Fellow podcaster's... Yeah, you know, and you're above me in the charts. No, well, I'm not sure. I'm not, not, not after this one. It might go down. Yeah, that's true. No, 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 thank no, you very no. much. Uh, you are a podcaster. You get I taxes am. from North London for the BBC. You want more taxes, and you like meddling. I am the anti-growth are you coalition. A that's of the what you're saying. Coalition. No, I'm the pro-growth coalition. Are you pro-growth? Um, yeah. Anyway, what did ever did happen to that person? <laughs> uh, uh, now we're we're here to talk about COP27. You're going next week. Big pressure from Labour. We're talking on the day which Rishi Sunak said he will go. After all, another U-turn. And, well, yes, the first screeching one, I think, the of this government one, because yeah. he said last Friday, the Friday of last yeah. week, he wouldn't go. Now he is going. That was an error by a, a young prime minister just in. Is it important he goes? I mean, David Cameron went in 2015, your mate Gordon Brown in 2009, but normally PMs don't go. I think it reflects the new world and the new reality we're in, which is climate policy is absolutely crucial and we know there's great urgency and I was sort of disbelieving when I heard he wasn't going. But also, Chris, climate policy and energy policy are connected in a way they weren't before. If if I'd been on your podcast 10 years ago, we wouldn't have existed. But if I'd been on it 10 years ago, I would have been saying, this is the ethical choice. Now I can honestly say to your listeners, this is the ethical choice and it's the economic choice, the business choice. Why do I say that? Because the cheapest, cleanest form of power we have at our disposal now are renewable. Solar and wind, nine times cheaper in the summer they were than gas. So People will be at home worrying about their energy bills. And one of the surprising things was when Rishi Sunak said, well, I've got domestic things I need to worry about, not the climate crisis. Well, the climate crisis is domestic politics, but also this is the route to cheaper bills. This is the route to jobs. This is the route to energy security. So obviously, I'm glad he's going. He's been shamed into it, frankly, hasn't he? 
you know, Johnson was going. Well, uh, by Sharp, you and Boris Howard Johnson. Sharma I mean, said, you know, his cop chief said yeah. who'd been demoted, but said, you know, you should be going. I think it shows what Rishi Sunak's instincts are. He's, I think you probably know this better than I do. It's not really his thing. This isn't the thing he cares passionately about, is it? You've even got events at the COP where Liz Truss issued the invitations and Rishi Sunak was proposing not to turn up. And it's a bit like not not attending your own birthday party. Mm. I, I, I think, but look, it's right that he goes. But what I want him arguing for is what we call a clean energy sprint. We've got this commitment to have zero carbon power by 2030. All of our power, all of our electricity provided by renewables and nuclear. That's if you win power in 2024. We, You've got it's, six it's, years to get there. Yeah, and it's That's fine. And it's hard. We'd be the first major country in the world to do it. And we're doing it for climate, but we're also doing it to cut bills. Huge economic opportunities. Will it cut bills? It's yes. A, this is the green crap yes. which David Cameron railed against no, 10 years Chris, ago when you were Labour leader. Here's the thing. Renewables, solar and wind, are, as I say, nine times cheaper than gas. It's really important your listeners understand When the wind that. blows and the sun shines. No, but, but hang on a minute. That's the old cliche, if I may say okay. so. You know, you now have systems of energy storage, green hydrogen. So that's producing hydrogen from renewables. That's a form of storage. So this is the key to lower bills. So the thing I'd say to your listeners is some of them will care passionately about climate. Lots of people do. Some of them won't have that front of mind. But whether you care about climate or not, this is the right thing to do. Green energy is the future because it's cheaper. We're in the middle of an energy bills crisis. Mm. The case for moving on this is stronger, not weaker, following Putin's but put war. Up, put up energy bills when it's not in the cost of energy bills. It cuts. It. You, you seem to be not getting this. It's going to cut energy bills. You're you're stuck in the old mindset. You're saying this is more expensive. It's not more expensive. It's cheaper. I promise you. So why are they doing it then? Why why are they taking 150 pounds of green levies off these bills? Why well, are they for, doing it? But that relates to some old subsidies that were in place when renewables were more expensive, right? Which came in under me and indeed under this government. Okay. But the point is, what's happened is the combination of the public sector and private sector working together has dramatically... Let me give you one fact. You know I'm a nerd, <laughs> right? Let me ask you a quiz question. I know this... <laughs> I'm the interviewer no, here. I know, I know, I know you're the, podca- I'm you're the podcaster. podcaster. Yeah. What do you think is the fall in the price of solar energy in the last decade alone? Gosh, I don't know. 30%. 89%. Right. 89%. That's volume. That's more of more. More volume. More volume. You, you know, and if you look around the world, you see countries, there's a global race on, Chris, mm. on this. Because everybody now recognises for 90% of the world, this is now the cheapest fuel, including us. And so therefore, you know, my appeal to your listeners is do this because of climate, yes, but do it because of bills. Do you understand security. the objections to onshore wind? Not least how they look and how they sound, which seems to uh, people who are near them complain about it. You know, I understand some people object to it, but I also look at opinion polls. You might say after my experience in 2015, I shouldn't be looking <laughs> well, at opinion polls. A minute. But 75% of people support onshore wind, including the majority of conservatives. Those who don't with, live near no, them. No, wrong. You're more likely to support them if you live oh, near them. Is that it. right? Yes. Have you been to an onshore? I, we should go. We should go Why together. Go on- Let's do it. Have you been to an onshore wind farm? I, I've seen them. I've driven past oh, them. You've driven past them? <laughs> Come on. Right, that is a promise. That is a, it's not about that is, me, this that is interview, a chop, Chopper's podcast promise, <laughs> and he always keeps his promises. We're going to visit an onshore wind a, farm together. Do you have I'm going to convert you. Do you have solar panels on your roof? I don't know. Why not? Well, I think partly because we, they got rid of the feed-in tariffs yes, that I introduced, which anymore. made it economical. And what we're looking at is how do we make it economical? I'm an EV driver, an electric car Good. Driver. Little windmill like David Cameron had I in... I think that was a little bit good. In Kensington. Wasn't it? But no, look, you know, I, I think we need to make all of this economical for yeah, people. Yeah. 
and, and sell it to them. On, on your whiteboard here in your office, yeah. you've got some numbers up there. What are they again? I'm so glad you asked me this. This is about the gigatons. 1.5 degrees, that's heating above the... Yeah, so this is about what needs to be achieved by the world by 2030 right. to keep the world on track for one and a half degrees of global warming. Now, we're, we're already at more than one degree above pre-industrial levels. Yeah. Now, shorthand, the current and this is not good news, I should warn your listeners, the current uh, direction of the world is towards 58 gigatons, that's billions of tons, easier to say billions of tons, of of global emissions. Right. And to be at 1.5, we need to be at 33. This is in 2030, and we need to be at 33 gigatons. So we are... Some way off. Some way off, aren't we? And you may remember that at Glasgow, at the COP26. That's emissions. That's a ton yeah, of that's emissions. emissions. Uh, it, it, COP26 in Glasgow, the promise was made to come back in a year's time mm. for everybody to review their emissions and targets and improve them. And that basically hasn't happened. No, quite. Uh, so Boris Johnson's gone. He, yeah. You've got common cause with him, haven't you? I mean, he's quite a big no, environmental campaigner. I mean, he's not all, up, not all bad, is he? I have to say this about him that. I thought it was rather skin deep, his environmental commitment, but he seems to have retained an interest in it post his premiership. And I think, you know, he was a bit, he was almost a sceptic, wasn't he? I think he wrote in the Daily Telegraph, you know, quite sceptical. Took a number of views on things in the Daily Telegraph, which he he honed. But I think he's one of these people. And by the way, I see it in Alok Sharma. Mm. You know, I, I get on very well with Alok, we are on... Emoji texting terms. Oh, you? Uh, what was the last emoji you sent to? Where's, where's your phone? Is somewhere? Some smiley emoji. I feel very sorry that he was sacked from the government, but he's another person who I don't think it was his biggest commitment before no. he was, you know, cop president, but he's obviously absolutely seized by it now. Mm. Those were real tears, weren't they, I think, yeah, when he couldn't get I the deal he wanted really in Glasgow. Can, and I think anyone who's confronted by this, in a way, the climate crisis sounds like something that's happening over there, but... You know, 40 degrees. Indian summer, they can happen. They can happen. Winds change direction. Well, last week when it was warm in London, I mean, that was just... Oh, you mean in the summer, don't you? I meant the 40 degree day. Yes, it was warm last week too in in London. Sure, but I mean, I think people are saying... I I think all the scientists tell us that we would be very unlikely to be having 40 degree days if it wasn't for the overall rising temperatures. I mean, Mm -hmm. you believe that, don't you? Yeah, I'm not a sceptic. I believe, I believe it. You're not a sceptic. You're the Al Gore of British politics, aren't you? Because you ran for high office 2010-15 and now you've reinvented yourself as a green maniac. I don't accept the word maniac. (laughs) I care about this and, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm still in frontline politics. And why is that? Because I think if there's a Labour government and if I was appointed to Secretary of State for Climate and Net Zero, I would have a chance to make a difference on this issue. Mm. And I think we can make a difference. And, I, you know, I passed the Climate Change Act when I was the Climate Change Secretary, which binding emissions into law. And, you know, there's a chance to make a difference. That's sort of what I'm... And about. you haven't got an opponent in government, have you? Because Carmen's exactly. shadow doesn't exist. Exactly. You look at Bayes, look at Rees Mogg and Bayes. I mean, I suppose it's now Grant Chatfield. For yeah. one brief shining moment, we had Jacob Rees Mogg. <laughs> That's right. That's frustrating for you because you're focused on this this narrow point, aren't you? But the government itself, the machinery of Whitehall, is where well, you're sort of tied up in business and industry and strategy or whatever. Yeah, although I don't see it as a narrow thing. I mean, I think the thing interesting thing about climate is it stretches across every area, you know, transport and land and homes and the power sector as well. So, Edmund, moving on briefly, you're a former leader. You were a leader of the opposition. And, and to be fair, you always took my questions at your press conferences. Good. What's your advice to Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, having just stood down? You have reinvented yourself very successfully. What is my advice to them? Take a holiday, although I don't think Boris Johnson needs that advice. No, he's had really. three now. I think 
do the things that you care about, really. You know? You've always been cared about the environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I carried on, become a podcaster. Maybe that's my <laughs> advice. I think, to be fair, Theresa May actually is handling her post-premiership well, isn't she? Mm, making interventions think? when she wants, exactly. Making interventions when she wants. You know, she obviously there are issues that she cares about, including actually the environment. Yeah. Look, I think it's hard. I, mm. Honestly, Chris, I think it is genuinely it's hard. It's hard, isn't it? Because it is hard. And I think it would be particularly hard for Liz Truss. Look, at a human yeah. level... Yeah. You know, she was Prime Minister for seven weeks. It's the shortest premiership in our history. Personally, I feel sorry for mm. her, but obviously I think there's a pretty disastrous reign. I mean, I think, you know, there's that day when well, I lost the election or the day after and all the security detail fades away and, you know, you've closed the front door and I felt, you know, miserable. But I remember thinking right at, early on at, the, at that time, I don't need to be leader in order to make a difference. I, d- I genuinely do believe that. When you think about this place, the House of Commons, lots and lots of people have made a difference, you know, in different ways, mm. and not necessarily by being a prime minister. So, you know, obviously, being prime minister, yeah. you know, you can make the biggest difference, but you can still pursue the causes you care about mm. by not being prime minister. Yeah, Ian Duncan Smith went back to, to yeah. govern Glasgow, yeah. found the CSJ, the Centre yeah. yeah. for Social Justice. William Hague became Shadow Foreign Secretary. Quite in fact, right. William Hague gave me some advice. I saw him after I lost in 2015. I remember I dropped him a note and said, you know, what the, <laughs> any <people?"> help? <laughs> uh, he was quite helpful. He said, look, do what interests you. He said, you, he actually said, you'll find that people change their minds about you. Mm. He said, you'll think you're the same person as you were, but people will change their minds I about think you. I think you became a lot funnier. And yeah. people saw this sense of humour about you. Might that might be annoying? I showed I had a semblance of a personality. As uh, well, yeah, I think it's so intense, isn't it? I mean, I think you know. I think there's something <laughs> about those jobs, yeah. which, in my case anyway, you end up feeling being too constrained. Mm. I mean, that's one thing you can't say about Boris Johnson. No, that's how yeah, he, you look too much like you've had the sort of microchip inserted. Mm, you know what I mean? Yes, quite right. And so when people discovered I had, a, as I say, a semblance of a personality after the 2015... They were delighted to see it, they, weren't they? They were delighted. They were surprised. And Theresa May has makes funny jokes in speeches. Does. If you heard her speeches. She does, definitely. How do you feel having your best ideas nicked? I, mean, I look back to your time when I covered you, 2010 to 15, the energy cap, the squeeze middle... I mean, you were right on a lot of stuff, weren't you? Well, it's better if your idea... That was a socialist measure, George Osborne called your energy cap. A Marxist, living in a Marxist universe, said David I may have written that in a story or something. I'm sure you did. It's interesting how the politics has come round to you, isn't it, on some key areas? I think there is an interesting... You know, I watch conservative leaders. If you think about David Cameron, his, as you said, his position on what I was saying was, you know, Miliband is just wrong about inequality and all of these problems that we face... Then you look at Theresa May, and she was saying, well, actually, there was a problem, and and also Boris Johnson levelling up. Now, trust was a reversion to pre-Cameron Toryism. You'd know better than me, but that's sort of what I think. Kind of IDS, really, I thought. Yeah, and then there's a question about where does Sunak sit? Is he a return to 2010-2015 austerity? Is he something else? I don't really know what his sort of set of beliefs is. But I think the sort of Cameron to May to Johnson evolution – I think shows that the Conservative Party, and maybe this was partly because of Brexit and what Brexit exposed, sort of recognised that there is a mood for economic change in the country. Lots of people feel the economy just doesn't work for them. And I continue to believe that that's why this agenda that I'm talking about around climate and jobs, this is about jobs, Chris, you see. This is about jobs in hydrogen and jobs in offshore wind production. I know you don't care on going on about this, but I care passionately about this. And I think this is about the jobs of the future. How does it feel seeing Keir Starmer doing so well? Good. 
Great. Great. And Wish I him all the best. You know, Not even a bit of you. Definitely. You and me, oh, oh, no one's listening. No, We're in the office. Honestly, this is probably, honestly, every week. You don't regret Every week. You're jealous I go to, jealous. If I go to PMQs, I feel, I think, thank God I'm not doing it. I mean, I have it still was hard. Have, I still have PTSD when I'm at PMQs, and I think, oh, my God, am I going to have to turn up? I don't love going to PMQs. No. Because it's sort of a reminder of the 125 times or whatever it was that I had to face David Cameron. Neil Kinnock said at this fundraiser that I was doing in 2010, I walked in, I remember walking to this fundraiser and he said in his very Neil way, I wouldn't wish this job on my worst enemy. <laughs> and I remember thinking, looking at him, thinking, God, what does he mean by that? And maybe yeah. I kind of. Do you think we're that. lucky that we've got Keir Starmer, could be earning lots of money as a barrister away from politics, but he's doing his bit for the country. You've got Richard Sunak, could be earning a lot of money in banking. He's doing a bit for the country. Are we blessed by. Look, I think, uh, let me, I can talk about... Go on, be nice, Harry Sunak. Well, I can talk about Keir particularly. I mean, look, he's somebody of great decency and integrity and is absolutely in politics for the right reasons. You know, I, I know him well. Why, why isn't Sunak the same? Sure. Well, look, I, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, let, look, time will tell. Let's see what he's about. My observation, okay, we're only eight or nine days in, is what's his positive agenda? What's he in it for? David Cameron was asked, why do you want to be prime minister, I think? Was it by your newspaper at a private dinner, I think? And he looked, apparently looked up at the ceiling and said, because I think I'd be good at it. Uh, <laughs> and what Gosh. is the Rishi Sunak answer? To that? I'm not sure. I mean, he hasn't really given himself that scrutiny. He wants to make things better. He talks about levelling up. Good question. Look, I'm not him. Why do you want to be prime minister? Why do I want to? Why did you? Why did I want to be prime minister? Because I felt that the country was too unequal and inequality was bad, not just socially, but economically. And I wanted to change it. And, you know, that was sort of what I was about. And I thought New Labour had great achievements, but, you know, I felt that that was one of the things that we hadn't tackled. Were you ever asked to go on a uh, reality TV show? I was asked to go on the after show for I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. <laughs> no. I was not, so there you go. The after uh, show. The only the after show. So that was in, afraid, wasn't in Australia? It wasn't in Australia. It wasn't somewhere quite as glamorous uh, as when, Australia. When was that? That was in... Uh... Uh, it must have been one of 2017, 2018. Of course you said if yes. If I'd been asked... No, I, but, you know, it's interesting <laughs> you should ask this because when you lose an election... Well, your diary sort of empties. I sometimes say you're glad for a call about your PPI claim. <laughs> and... You get asked to do all manner of things. I think I got asked to do a sort of celebrities, in my case, sort of C-list celebrities, get asked to kind of learn to be kind of rally drivers. I said no. <laughs> um, the I, I'm a celebrity after party or after show. Have I got news for you? I didn't do that. So no. I was pretty sparing. I sort of think if you're in politics, you need to be quite careful. Ed Balls is a completely different category. Yeah, well, he'd he's left. outside. He'd exactly, left. Exactly. And he's obviously made a great success of it. But I think it's quite hard to be – I am I kind of – To ride two horses. It's slightly hard to ride two, two horses. I mean, obviously, Matt Hancock must have known – I would have thought he would have known the consequences, would he? Well, I, I, I mean, mean – Nadine Dorries went on and I think also had the whip suspended, didn't she? Yes, she did. And she kept the fee, I think, for memory. And I think the issue is going to be the money. If he keeps that money and doesn't give it all to charity, there's a problem there for him. But well, I mean, we'll He's work. obviously of the view that sort of all publicity is good publicity. And you're the most optimistic you've been for a while about Labour's prospects. I'm Look at the polls. optimistic, but feet on the ground. Tony Blaze, Sam, the eternal warrior against complacency. Mm. It is before 1997. And I think that is Do a good... Do you think you were in 97 levels of hatred towards Tories and only 92 levels of love towards Labour? Is that a difference? I don't know. I think it's hard to compare these things. I suppose I am very wary about these claims and these comparisons. And I know this is Keir's view as well, which is complacency is our enemy. And 
if the polls had been right, at least at one point, I would have been prime minister. No doubt I would have come on your podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but you've got to be really careful about poll watching. You know, you've got to be developing your arguments, making your mm. arguments. And you obviously keep a, half an eye on the polls, but I would say half an eye. Well, Ed Miliband, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's been great fun, and I hope you don't go down the chance as a result. <laughs> thank you. Ed Miliband there, the second best political podcaster in Westminster. Honest. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking the small boats crisis with local Tory MP in Kent, Craig McKinley, and the return of, yep, Project Fear with Professor Robert Toombs, right after this. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice-in-a-decade political set-piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running. Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappear by the state all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi? Well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle, one we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator from The Telegraph. Now, immigration is back in the news this week, dominating Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions. Home Secretary Suella Braveman is under severe pressure to cope with the influx, well, invasion, as she might call it, of migrants into Kent. It's overwhelmed an immigration centre, Manston, and the question is now, as she deals with this crisis, is what will she do about it before the annual figures are released later this month? which could sow net migration hitting record levels. So I thought I'd ask South Thanet Tory MP Craig McKinley to join me at my usual bar stool in the Red Lion pub to have a chat about what on earth to do about migration. Craig McKinley, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Great to be here. Got your mug for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I will treasure it. It's been quite a week, isn't it, I think, for the Tory party. It's back to debating issues rather than the existential crisis surrounding the leadership. The big issue of this week has been immigration. You're an MP from Kent. Is it an invasion? 
Are you seeing an invasion of migrants? Was that overstated by the Home Secretary this week? I'm really not bothered about the form of words used. I'm looking for action on getting this issue solved. I know everybody's focused on the word. Well, okay. What well, is, is, what? It's a dog whistle word, isn't it? It's a word to which an extent. I mean, it would have used in the past. Obviously, you know, invasion is a term used for a you know a force that's looking to take over the country. So, yeah, perhaps it's not the perfect word. I, I was trying to think of the perfect word, but forty thousand people coming in irregularly, twenty eight thousand last year, it is something. I'm not sure it's an invasion, but it is certainly a very serious political matter that needs to be solved. I actually see it as more than serious. I, I would call it totemic. Unless we get this solved to people's satisfaction, my real worry is that we could see you know, some sort of challenger, right of centre party coming forward, nicking a few of our votes, and just 5% becomes very serious across lots of seats across the country. This is the Nigel Farage party, isn't it? Now, you know him pretty well, don't you? Well, I do. We go back 30-odd years. Yes. Were you in UKIP at some point in the past? Uh, yes, I was a founder of it. You're a founder. I was going yes. to say, I knew that. <laughs> You're a fan of you, so you know the, the threat that's coming towards the party if they don't get this right. Well, the threat is not always that they will win. The threat is that they take a predominant number of votes from Conservative Party, which has always been the case. I know Brexit Party and others had an appeal to Labour voters, and that was a, an appeal of its day. And I wasn't surprised to see that, particularly in the unexpected Euro elections in 2019 that nobody wanted and didn't expect to have. And I think their support was more broadly based. But in the old, what I call traditional times of UKIP, I would say that 70-80% of the voters that migrated to UKIP were Conservative voters, and they're voters that we dare not lose, particularly in those very tight seats. Do you see any evidence that there is a party being started yet? Not yet, but I mean, the, the risk has always got to be there. Uh, I know, you know Richard Tice is always very active. Yeah, that's the Reform Party. It, it is. I forget all the names. Really. Reclaim, Reform, the Reclaim, Fox. the Heritage Party, whoever they are. I don't even know who they are. They're not cutting through, though, are they? I mean, the, the, no, they always rule the roost still on the centre right of the British. Well, well, in a way, we thought that after Boris had delivered Brexit and 2019 election, that that fringe, that group sitting out to our right, were in the tomb and the coffin was sealed and gone forever. But I think we'd be naive to think that. And your concern is, unless the issue of migration is dealt with, then you could see a UKIP-style party fighting some seats at the next election. The reality is, it doesn't matter what you know, UKIP or other style party, they wouldn't be able to solve this problem any easier than we could. But they split your vote, a resurgent UKIP or whatever the party might be. Well, absolutely, because I've been saying for a year or more, unless France want to play ball, which they could, and stop the beach launchings, that would stop this in a fortnight. When people who are paying whatever they're paying, three, five thousand euros, realise this doesn't work, they would not do it anymore. It's as simple as that. So I'm disappointed with the French. I'm hoping perhaps Rishi will forge a new relationship with Macron, but that's perhaps wistful and hopeful. Just finally on the issue of the electoral impact, how many seats could be under threat? if a new party came forward, a resurgent UKIP or a different party? Well, we, we've already got threat in our red wall, blue wall seats. Red wall seats, I suppose, is what we're referring them to. They're already under some threat because, you know, we're not flying as high as we were in 2019. But in those seats where we only hold them by 5% or less, I would say they are the, the, the seats. How many of those are there? Well, there'll be dozens, literally dozens of them, enough to lose a majority.
You mentioned that it's 40,000 have arrived by small boats. Let's say small boats uh, this year. Four in 10 are Albanians. Isn't the issue quite easily dealt with? You just sort out the Albania problem, then then numbers fall down to the regular number of 20,000 or so arriving by small boats. I raised this exact issue with the Home Secretary at her statement on Monday, that it's the Albanians, which is the new dimension that we've seen this year. Uh, the numbers were you know, pitifully small over the last few years, and now they become a, a very big and appreciable number. It was estimated that two-thirds of those being held at Manston, which has become the big issue this week, uh, just over That's the border the near, you. near me, that two-thirds of them were Albanians. So if we can stop that amount, which I just cannot see in any logic that there is any claim for an Albanian. Albania is an EU applicant country, it's a NATO country, it's a member of the Council of Europe, it's signed up to all the good and worthy international accords. How on earth you can have a claim from asylum from what I would call one of the family of nations in Europe is frankly beyond me. That's not a unique view of mine, it's obviously a view that Germany and Sweden have taken because my understanding is they've taken zero applications for refugee status from uh, Albania. The problem is, is the 2015 a modern slavery act which has added a new dimension to all of this it was put in place i think for all the right reasons all good and worthy reasons but we've created a new loophole we can't claim asylum but perhaps we can claim modern slavery and trafficking and that seems to be the go-to appeal that they're reaching out for and all the while that those claims are being looked into they're in 150 pounds a night hotels bed and board three meals so it's a day quite easily dealt with I would think so. It's a loophole issue. It's pushing forward with with some kind of agreement with Albania. Those two things can solve the problem. I would say that has got to be the easiest reach. I mean, is that months away? We have got, as you say, twenty thousand others. Is that manageable? Is that healthy? No, it's not. I think the whole irregular crossings of the channel is is seriously unhealthy. And people point out to me, and I I tend to agree, you know, we're a nation that's got Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers can sort of pinpoint a missile within a a metre anywhere on the planet, but we can't seem to stop a a load of dinghies coming across the channel. And that is the annoyance, I think, that the British people feel. What's in our waters, though? We have to pick them up, don't we, and bring them ashore? There is an overlay of much complication here. You've got the 1951 Refugees Conventions, which you have to say perhaps is not really fit for purpose in this day and age, with travel being so much easier than it was. We've got 80 to 100 million people around the world are in war-torn situations and strife. They would all potentially have a claim in the UK should they get here. You've got the problem of the median line with France, which is quite a unique problem because immediately you're out of French waters, you're into British waters. You've got safety at sea issues. You've got the tail end of the... Dublin conventions, and you've got a failure of EU Frontex, frankly, who are not dealing with this issue. So it's talk to France more, talk to Albania more, yep. and close the loophole of modern slavery out. That's a three-stage I would say step th- to get there. They're the easy wins. Are you sympathetic towards the Home Secretary in that she's been criticised for keeping migrants in the Manston site for more than the 24 hours she's meant to because she can't send them anywhere to hotels, or has she been blocking hotels, rooms that the taxpayer should be paying for? Well, my understanding is, and she made that clear on the statement on Monday, that 
she has been booking hotel rooms. But when you've got a thousand people coming in a day, if anyone has got any great ideas how we can spirit up thousands of hotel rooms overnight, then I'd love to hear it. Manston is not ideal. It was meant to be a triage centre there for 24, 48 hours. It's more than not ideal. It's dreadful conditions in Manston. It is, absolutely. But it's a feature of where else do you put these people when so many are coming in in such short order. Cyrilla Braveman told me on my podcast last month at the Troy Party Conference that she dreams of putting migrants on the flights to Rwanda. Is that overstating it? Do you dream of it? We have got a problem in that we are short of tools in the box. Without France being in agreement, without having different interpretation of perhaps ECHR rules, we have to reach for an unusual tool. And an unusual tool is Rwanda. It's not the perfect solution by any standard. But if it has the effect of deterrence then it's got to be to the good. I wish Labour and many of these multitude of charities that we see, I wish they were open and honest with the British people and say, we want open borders for Britain. It's a position to take, obviously not one I would support, but it seems to me that is their focus and what they are pushing. Well, that could even be, Why don't we have a discussion about that? That could even that? be a Conservative position because if Brexit is about taking back control then control is turn the tap on and off on areas of migration required to boost the economy. That's the point of Brexit, isn't it? It is entirely, yes. Um, it's not stopping it altogether, it's controlling it. Should Rishi Sunak sack Swella Braveman? Absolutely not. I know she had the, you know, the issue with the emails and whatever that was. Sent to personal addresses. But seriously, seriously. I don't think the Dalai Lama would uh, come under this amount of scrutiny and keep in role if that's where we've got to. She put her hands up. For you, that would hand a victory to the critics, would it? It, it would, would absolutely. To labor she she put her hands up. She said she's done wrong. And let's move on. Are we seriously all that infallible? I most certainly aren't. Craig McKinley, you're one of the senior officers of the European Research Group of Tory MPs. Swella Braveman is a former chairman. Jacob Rees-Mogg is a former chairman. He left government last week. How important is it to have somebody with that ERG heritage that background at the top of government at the cabinet table going to what will be a difficult 18 months for for dealing with the Brexit issue in Northern Ireland? Well, as we know, the Brexit issue is not totally solved. We got partway there. We've still got the massive issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And I was very excited that Jacob brought forward the retained EU law bill, which could be the supply side reforms to actually get lots of our economy moving, stripping away bureaucracy, unnecessary stuff. And that is the bill. But do you trust Rishi Sunak on Brexit? Because I know there's there's a battle over the Northern Ireland Protocol bill, which the Treasury we think, was trying to water down when it was being drawn up and battled over in the summer. Well, as you know, the Treasury orthodoxy is steady as she goes, let's not upset things, keep scare the horses and all that. We do need the scare the horses on Northern Ireland Protocol because it is fundamentally not right that a part of this United Kingdom is treated separately from the rest of us and is still under the auspices of the European Court of Justice. That constitutionally is unacceptable. And do you me. see enough people represented in the cabinet to fight that corner? A slight worry over that. That's why we need some of the hitters at the top uh, that the RG are very you know, happy with, that the right of centre of the party are happy with. Because as we know, this is unfinished business. It's got to be finished. And if we're going to go to the nation saying we have properly got Brexit done, that's part of the puzzle that needs to be solved. We're looking into a big month for government spending. Now, you and I have done some work before on this campaign for a new national flagship. Do you think it's time to pause that project while we get over the hump of this huge black hole in the government accounts? Well, 
It comes down to how much this costs. There's lots of private investors are keen to get involved still. And I think with a, a nod and a, a will from the government, I think it could still take place. But you know, let's look at what this costs. What are we into? 200 million? I mean, we're into a number of minutes or hours worth of what we pay out on other issues. This is a drop in the ocean. And I think a flagship policy for having a national flagship would pay dividends like we've been talking about for years in terms of a projection of Britain's esteem in a global Britain. I Trade think deals. It, I think it would pay for itself within moments. You have to look at the, what Britannia gave to this nation and it paid for itself many, many times over. And I think they could do so again. I would love to see that new flagship turning up in New York Harbour with the fanfare that it's due. Not dead yet then. Craven Kill No, even not sunk yet. Craven <laughs> Killing, thank you for joining us in the Red Lion pub for Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this podcast started out being called Chopper's Brexit Podcast, and I thought I'd left that behind. But no, there are some people out there intent on reminding us why they think it was a mistake to leave the European Union. Let me tell them and you, not everyone agrees. Not least Robert Toombs. He's Professor Emeritus in French History at the University of Cambridge and the author, most recently, of a book called This Sovereign Isle. Robert Toombs, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris, and thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed a piece you wrote for The Telegraph entitled Project Fear is Back and It's As Wrong As Ever. We'll put a link to that in the show notes to the episode of this podcast, but I wanted to ask you what you meant by that. Well, by Project Fear, I think I, well, I mean what most people mean by it, which I would say is the purely negative arguments against Brexit that we've been hearing over and over again ever since the time of the referendum. That's to say there's very rarely, if ever, any positive argument for our being in the EU or our rejoining the EU. In fact, it's never really discussed. The only thing that keeps coming back is that it's been a terrible disaster or it will be a terrible disaster or it is a terrible disaster to have left. Not very logical, but that's the way the argument's presented. It's always about how bad it will be outside. And you might think, well, surely this will have died away because after all the disasters that were promised in 2016 haven't happened. But now because of the problems that we're in, because the whole world is in them, inflation, the the after effects of the pandemic, and of course, of the Ukraine invasion, all these things are affecting every country in the world, and certainly every country in Europe. And yet it's all being blamed on Brexit. Certainly Liz Truss's problems have not made things any easier. And they've given a kind of opening to people who are saying, well, look, you know, we always said it was going to be awful and now it is awful and it's all the fault of Brexit. And that's what I, my, I mean by Project Fear coming back. And the people saying this, I would say, should know better, right? They should know better, but they're often people in, in very prominent positions and they're indeed in media outlets, which are very prominent. I suppose I ought not to mention any names. No, you can. Go on, just a minute. <laughs> well, the BBC is one. The Financial Times is one, The Economist is another, The Guardian, of course. And one tends to get the same kind of chorus here. Away from the press, though, the individual saying it, you quoted Mark Carney and Alistair Campbell being, being a couple. Yes, exactly. Well, I mentioned them in my article. And Mark Carney, because he said, as some of your listeners will remember, that the British economy was 90% of the German at the time of Brexit, and now it had fallen to 70%. Well, I was talking to a leading economist, actually, at the time when that came out, and he said, well, it's obviously impossible, because if that had happened, it would have meant the end of the world in Britain. It would have meant that the British economy was collapsing. And so he said, well, I knew this couldn't be true, but I've checked the figures, and it's not true. Indeed, it's the opposite of the truth. 
because what the figures show, and, and I'm talking now about OECD figures and World Bank figures, the sorts of things that are accepted and not controverted, is that the British economy since Brexit has actually grown slightly faster than the German. And so we have, if anything, slightly caught up with the Germans since Brexit and indeed have been growing faster than many EU countries. So whatever problems we have, and of course we have problems, it's not logical to see them as a consequence of Brexit. In your article there, you say that France has grown by 7.6%. We're behind that at 6.8%, but ahead of Germany on 55 and Italy on 4%. So there is a positive story there. You also in your piece talk about how foreign greenfield investment to Britain was up by a third since Brexit between 2016 and 2021. I mean, it isn't all bad is what you're saying, isn't it, Robert Toombs? Well, I am saying it's not all bad. Now, other people might say, oh, well, yes, but it's not awfully good, is it? You know, where's the great Brexit bonus? And to some extent, I'd agree with that in that I think governments since 2016 could have been rather more dynamic and more positive in looking for the benefits of Brexit. But those of us who voted to leave the EU did not do so in the belief that this was suddenly going to transform the country and make us all much richer. We did so in the belief that democratic accountability required it, and also in the belief that in the long term, we'd be better off outside the EU than inside. It was not going to happen overnight. And of course, it entirely depends on the choices that our elected governments make and we as as an electorate make. Do you see, to some extent, there's a kind of exceptionalism, the way that these issues are covered? So there are big issues globally about fuel supplies, energy. There are big issues about globally about inflation and debt issues. And But we seem to think it's a uniquely British problem half the time, the way it's been reported. Well, the way it's been reported is, I mean, I think some of our media are rather parochial anyway. Not the Telegraph, of course. No, of course not, of course not. But, you know, often the media don't talk about much about any other countries. And it's as if we are living in a, in a kind of bubble in which all our problems are unique. But then we have a level of inflation which is about the same as all the rest of Europe, less than some countries, slightly more than others. It's not that we're out of step, it's that we're suffering the same problems as everyone else. And to present them as if they are simply British problems, which is really quite systematically done, is dishonest. You know, it's easy to be paranoid about this and say, oh, well, it's a sort of plot to present us in the worst light, which in some cases it might be. It may just be bad journalism. But, you know, often when a comparison makes us look bad, we get the comparisons, as was the case during the COVID epidemic. You know, when you could say, well, we're having more people dying every week than are the French, the Germans, the Italians, etc. That would always be shown. But it's very rarely shown if we're not doing worse or even if we're doing better than other countries. And I would have thought the honest thing to do if you're going to talk about the effects of Brexit is to try to show the whole effects of Brexit and to show the effects by comparison with those countries that are still members of the EU. But that is very rarely done. And therefore, whether it's deliberate or whether it's negligent, it does give a systematically false picture. Well, why do you think that is? Is it because people are still divided into Remainers and Leavers and never the twain shall meet? I mean, the ONS should be the body, or the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, should be, they should be the bodies which give a fair appraisal of where we are. Do you think they're not doing it either? I think they tend to rely on certain ways of modelling but I mean, in this case, I think there's no doubt the figures that I've mentioned that you mentioned that are in my article are not based on British figures. They're based on international figures. 
But often I think some of our institutions and certainly the Treasury are wedded to certain ways of measuring and above all of forecasting economic changes, which are often disputed by academics. And so we should take those with a pinch of salt. So I think they're not always doing a very good job. And one thing that I think is ever so slightly shocking, or perhaps a bit more than that, is that the Treasury, under all the chancellors we've had since Brexit, has never actually apologized or renounced the figures it came out with in 2016, which predicted disaster. And I think it would be rather good if the Treasury were to have another look at this and say why they got it wrong and try to make a better fist of uh, modeling our future economic growth. But of course, all that depends on what governments do. And that depends on what we want them to do to some extent. But something I would like to say is that I naively thought that the division over Brexit would not last as long as it has done. I think that is rather worrying that you know, whenever there's an excuse, it reemerges. And, you know, people might say, well, people like me are just as much to blame as the anti-Brexiteers, the Remainers. But nevertheless, I would have thought that this should have died down now. And I can't help thinking that the reason is that this is not really about Europe. It's not about the EU. It's about who governs Britain. And the people who which after all was most of the political class, whose opinions and whose advice was overruled by the electorate in 2016, have not forgiven that. And I think they really want to, to reassert their control over the way the country is run. And so you were saying a little while ago that the Brexit revolution may be over. Well, I think it certainly is in the balance because so many people in positions of authority have never been happy about it and want to make it as little effective as they can. Are you saying that if these uh, commentaries are not challenged, it could lead to us ending up rejoining the European Union? It's very difficult to predict the future. I think what is possibly likely to happen if Labour wins the next election, or even if it doesn't, is that we start drifting back towards a closer association with the EU, which will mean, in effect, are obeying EU rules more and more. And I think the only way out of that is to have a government that will really try to make Brexit work. It's a terrible cliche now, but it's been it's said so often, and yet it hasn't actually been done. So I think, you know, that the things that have been promised are removal of unnecessary EU regulations, our signing of trade agreements with other trading partners. These things have to be pushed ahead. And once they have been, I think then it will make the decision of 2016 really effective. And if, as I, of course, hope, as we all hope, that these do make us a more prosperous country, that the whole debate over Brexit will sooner or later become part of history. Well, on that note, Robert Toombs, I think many listeners will agree with you on that. Thank you for joining us this week, as ever, on Chopper's Politics. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure, Chris. And thank you to my guests once again this week, Robert Toombs, Craig McKinley and Ed Miliband. Thank you to my brilliant team of producers, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampitt. If this podcast isn't enough chopper for you, and I don't blame you, you can sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter for more Westminster insights. The link to that, along with Robert Toombs' article, is in the show notes to this episode. And as ever, please do read my weekly Peterborough Diary column out on Fridays at 7pm online and in Saturday's edition of The Daily Telegraph. And remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. It's great value for money, you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!